Welcome to Managing Marketing, and today I have a great opportunity to sit down with a old colleague and friend, well, a colleague and friend from a long time, um, and that's Clive Duncan. Welcome, Clive. Thanks, Darren. Pleasure to be here. So, Clive, for as long as I've known you, uh, you've been involved in the film and television industry. Um, you've had a lot of jobs in a lot of different areas. What are some of them? I know director and agency producer and now consultant. But what else is there? When, uh, when I first started out, Darren, I joined the ABC as a, an, I wanted to be a cameraman. And um, they put me through the ABC induction system, which means you go to the mail room and start at the bottom. And I spent um, oh. some time down at the Rip and Lee Studios in the um, staging department, which is shifting the sets around, uh, making sure that all the props are there, etc., etc., in the studios for the... Uh, for the um, multi-camera dramas that they were doing and things like that. Um, and then eventually I was, when a vacancy came up in the, uh, in the, tele, in, in the uh, cine camera department, I was moved over there and uh, started my career in the film industry, I guess. And it was a great introduction because um, in those days, you actually worked on multiple disciplines. For instance, you'd work on news or current affairs. You'd work on uh, things like the religious programs, uh, um, nature programs, and of course, drama, which uh, was augmented or, or which was a split between studio shot on um, videotape and exterior uh, shoots that were shot on film and they'd put them together and you could quite obviously pick the difference in uh, quality. Um, and um, yeah, I worked with them for three years and then um, I became a ski bum for two years. And then, <laughs> and then, uh, then I went back to the ABC and they welcomed me with open arms, not because I was a promising cameraman, but because I knew their system and I could do the paperwork with my eyes shut, which I did quite often. So, <laughs> and after, after um, I worked on uh, some of their major dramas, uh, Power Without Glory, uh, one of their major dramas and several others. Uh, Beat of the City and a few other ones. And um, then the lure of advertising called me. And, right. And the money of advertising as well. At that stage, um, the Australian film industry was just in its infancy and uh, they needed the technicians. And, um, and the advertising uh, side of it uh, needed the technicians as well. And, of course, they paid better than the ABC, uh, but no super unfortunately. So um, I started working as a camera assistant for cameramen mm. and I went from shooting 16mm or handling 16mm film and, and shooting 16mm film at the ABC to 35mm which was the, um, the uh, industry high achievers standard if you're well, shooting. Well the gold standard wasn't yeah, it? 30, exactly. 35mm yeah. for years was considered yeah. the gold standard mm. of, of shooting mm. wasn't it? Yes, and that's what um, that's what gave us the uh, a problem when it came to videotape. When I first was at the ABC, the uh, videotape boffins would come out of their little caves, and they and I remember one day they came out and they had a uh, a one inch videotape machine made by Ampex 
in a case that they strapped to their back and then they had this massive camera that came over their shoulder mm -hmm. on, a, on a thing and they looked at us, the cinematographers, and said, your days are numbered. Uh, that, was some, that was some 18 years before, uh, before we started shooting digitally. And um, what, the, what the gold standard was, was that the Americans shot on 35mm film all the time. They, in fact, even shot their... Um, uh, sitcoms on 35 mil multiple 35 mil cameras well the news was shot on uh 16 mil and uh, yeah, sometimes the news, 35 yeah yeah the germans uh the well both the germans and the americans during the war shot on 35 mil film mm. so what we had was this sort of undeclared gold standard which was 35 mil film and 35 but it was also because those early days of videotape was pretty ordinary wasn't it I mean, the pre-digital days, it was, you know, um, not grainy, but, you know, it would break up, you'd get little pixels flashing everywhere, um, you know, and as you said, the equipment to run it was enormous. Yeah. yeah. Now, I don't think it really was a viable alternative outside of the sort of controlled environment of the studio until you got to the digital age That's where right. sizes, you know, started coming down. When you went yeah. from... From a consumer's perspective, Dad's old clunky VHS camera, which was like a ghetto blaster with a <laughs> uh, a lens on the front, yeah, um, down to the little handheld digital handy cams. Mm. That was around the same time that video started becoming at least a viable alternative. Yeah, well, obviously the price came down. I mean, you could buy it, and you still can today. You can buy a good quality handy cam for under a thousand dollars. Mm. But what they what the video people failed to realise was that the size of the chip, the receptor, yeah, the CCD, the, yeah, the CCD, exactly, mm. were tiny, mm. and that's why video cameras had massive depth of field because the the CCDs were tiny and, and the lenses would just get... Yeah, it comes into the optics of the exactly. lens because the, the centre of the lens is always more perfect yep. than the edges of exactly. the lens. Exactly. So yeah. if you're only capturing the image through a very small field yep. and the CCDs were small because it was so much cheaper, it was so expensive to make big, big CCDs. Ones, yep. Yep. So they made small, mm. so it meant that the depth of field, it wasn't... It wasn't due to the digital technology. It was just due to the physical yes, technology exactly. of the size the of it of the and lens. the physical lens yep. shape. Yeah. Because it's the same problem now. That you know that that's why if you're the bigger the lens that you can make, mm. the more accurate the centre of the lens will always be. Yeah. Than the periphery. There's yeah. always aberrations. Mm. Even in the the finest lenses, there's less, but there'll always be some aberration. Yeah. Yeah. And and what the public had become used to was the 35mm films of in the cinema, mm. right? And we went to the cinema and we were knocked out by, the, you know, the, the beautiful close-ups where, you know, the actor's eyes would be pin sharp and his ears would begin to soften off and things like that. And that was the, that was the gold standard that everybody was used to. And the video people just couldn't get it. So eventually, after many, many years, they developed chips big enough to cover the 35mm mil, um, millimetre sensors. So in a way, the technology had to mimic 
Yes. The formats that were set, because 35mm had been around since the start of the 20th century. That's right, yeah. You know, that was the original format that the Luminaire brothers were... Oh, there was a few. Soon after. Soon after, yeah. It didn't change a lot. No. No. Yeah, and 70 mil was a bit of an aberration, you know, yep. creating that bigger uh, field to capture. Yep. Mm. 70 mil was was a gimmick um, because I'd started running out of of differences between, you know, the gimmicks. So they had um, Vista Vision and all sorts of things which were basically larger formats or just different um, aspect ratios. Oh, Panavision. Remember yeah. when Panavision came yep. in? Yep. And that, yep. all that was was the what became known as the 16.9 format. That's right. Because it was just super wide. Yeah. Rather yep. than the old 4.3 yep. format yep. For, that was used on television for a long time. That's right. And when, um, when you were watching a Panavision movie on TV, you'd notice that the credits particularly in the westerns all the cowboys and their horses were were, were lot tall, tall and, slim. and skinny <laughs> yeah exactly because they had to show it in that format to get the compress the letters in yeah to compress the width of exactly, it and yeah. made them tall yeah. and skinny and yeah. then in the action they'd cut back to you know normal sized um, actors but because of course they were cropping the, yeah of image. course the sides of the lens the sides of the picture were missing and we've seen that, uh, you know, in the last 10, 15 years with digital television. Because, you know, the television sets of the last century, of the 20th century, mm. were square. They yeah, were that 4-3. Yeah, 4-3 four, four, three. Three. Four, three format. And then yeah. all the new ones have mimicked the... 16, yeah, the cinema style, 16-9. Yeah, 16-9 widescreen. Yeah. So that suddenly when we had both analogue TV transmission and digital transmission happening at the same time, Either people were losing the, you know, we were cropping, if you shot it for digital TV, yep. you were cropping the 16.9 and losing all that extra image, yep. or you had 4.3 uh, going out on digital channels with back, big black yeah. stripes yeah, exactly. down either side. Exactly. Yeah. And it's interesting now that the phone um, cameras have become... Uh, Popular. Not, yeah, popular and, and used for news gathering because, you know, it's the citizen journalist. You see the vertical format of the iPhone or, or the smartphone and those panels on the side again. So mm. you know exactly what it's been shot on. It's interesting because uh, they're using vision mixers to take that centre image, mm. blur it, mm. and then just duplicate it on the side to stop the big black bars because yes. the black bars are so ugly when you're watching television yeah to create something just to fill in that vertical format but darren let me say this they're fooling nobody yeah i know <laughs> we know we know, exactly we know well we know what's going on if you yeah. understand the technology and the formats you know but mm. i think for a lot of people you know they just it they don't even think about it they would think about it if the black was there yeah. But this out of focus, similar yep. colour, similar movement, mm. I think actually is a aesthetic solution. You'd have to convince me on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a lot of things that uh, you've had to convince people over this. Because didn't you also work in um, uh, a labs? You know, yes. Like pro- yeah. Actually processing yeah. film. Yep. Yeah. In the in the days when they were processing film, I was actually um, coerced into managing a lab. They the the people that bought the lab thought that a cinematographer would have a lot more in common with the users of the lab 
than basically just chemists and uh, the like that used to run them. Um, it was an abysmal failure, I must admit. <laughs> <laughs> in uh, hindsight. In hindsight. 2020 and, hindsight. And uh, luckily I was saved and I was offered a job uh, as a um, production manager in uh, Asia. And I worked all over Asia and that uh, uh, piqued my interest in, uh, in Asia and, and their industry. But um, yes, the film lab was an interesting uh, experience. And um, now, of course, they don't exist. Digital has taken over. Those guys in the, uh, in the yard with the one-inch Ampex um, backpack were right. You know, our days were numbered. And, uh, <laughs> well, in a way, except that what we see now is it still requires, irrespective of whether it's film or digital, mm -hmm. um, it still requires the skills of a cinematographer it's uh, to frame and, yeah. and to you know use light. Yes. Um, yeah. Even though you know the latitude's still there, that you can still tell the difference between a skilled cinematographer and the average Joe with a handy cam, can't you? Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. Yep, so there can. is still the role of the cinematographer yes, to bring yep. great, capture great images. It's just that the yep. tools that they use have changed. Yep. And, the, and cinematographers actually develop over years and years, and it's through working with other people. And the, there is actually what I call film language, and it's the perfected mechanics of shooting film. And as, as when you start out, you don't, you don't even know what film language is. And then when you work on a crew, you actually uh, don't know. They use jargon and things like that that can be confusing at times. But as you keep working, you actually work out what they're talking about. When I, when I was learning, there was no, um, you know, Swinburne Tech in Melbourne was the only film uh, teaching facility in Australia. The AFTRS in Sydney didn't exist. Uh, there was no courses at, um, at universities. There was no media courses. There was nothing like this. So it's uh, learning on the on set or in the, on, on the, the job on the studio floor. Yeah, uh, was a very interesting experience. And it's when you learn that language, it becomes obvious to you that there's a lot more to it than you think. Yeah. And it's the people that pick up uh, and pick up their dad's handy cam and go, you know, I'm a filmmaker now. You, there's just glaring mistakes. And in fact, I was watching something the other day. Uh, I tell you what it was. It was um, uh, the one of the ABC program Pine Gap. Mm -hmm. And I was watching it. And I'm going, why so much headroom? How come they're framed on the wrong side of the frame? And I realised that it was the video videographer's attempt at art rather than just telling the story in a compelling way, in a straightforward way. He was attempting art, which basically detracted from the storytelling. There are certain rules and regulations that everybody has adhered to since the 30s in Hollywood. Well, it's almost like a visual day. language, isn't yes, it? Yes, exactly. You know, there's yeah. a visual way of communicating. Yeah. And while it's interesting to push those boundaries, you know, mm. like like when hand, you know, everyone was shooting handheld to get yep. their yep. supposed documentary feel, mm. um, you know, that was still taking a 
style, a visual language yep. to an extreme, mm. uh, what they didn't allow for is when you project that onto a big screen, uh, people get motion sick. <laughs> <laughs> we used to refer to it as wobbly cam. Wobbly cam, <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's right. Which is why you have technology like Steadicam. Yeah, you exactly. Know, when you've yeah. got a cinematographer that has to move across uh, uneven surfaces, so you can't set up a set of tracks or, mm. or you know, have a... Well, a, you can at great expense. Yeah, or, you know, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, you know, to be able to, you know, they design technology to allow them to literally walk the camera yep. over that terrain and get a steady natural movement rather than that wobbly cam. Wobbly cam, cam. yeah, yeah. yeah. In fact, those uh, those camera operators are always, they look like front rowers for uh, yes, the yeah, rugby yeah, because yeah, they're yeah. always, well, some of that equipment they carry can uh, be... In the very early days, they had to be very fit and yeah. they, you know... Strong. I mean, yeah, strong. And they, you know, I know a great steady cam operator and he used to spend half his life in the gym just developing his muscles. Mm. And uh, he was he was an excellent operator. Yeah. Um, and he uh, he went on to you know they're the unsung heroes because they save the uh, the production company so much money because you don't have to have six groups laying a track all you need is a competent steady cam operator who can walk across a railway track and then up a couple of stairs mm. um, to to get the shot and it opened up um, you know amazing opportunities for the directors to well for storytelling yeah. you know to do yeah. those shots where they can follow the yeah. the lead or the action through you yep. know really complex yep. uh, yeah. environments and nowadays the cameras are even lighter and um they have handheld gimbals mm. which is basically a cage you hold onto which has got the camera in the middle of it and um no matter what uh Happens the cage. Yeah, the what camera happens stays. the cage, the camera stays, and they're, they're uh, gyroscopically uh, controlled, mm. and, uh, you know, they're incredibly light. Now, going back to, um, you know, the, you worked in Asia, and you've worked mm -hmm. in lots of markets yeah, around yeah. the world. Um, is it true that pretty much the production of, of film or TV production process is almost universal, isn't it? It is universal. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So it doesn't matter where you are in the world, whether it's Bollywood or Hollywood. That's right. Whether you're shooting on the beach in uh, Sydney or in the snow in Siberia, it's That's pretty right. much the, the same. The principles process. are the same. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, the film language is the same. Uh, the technology is the technology the same. Yeah, exactly. I, I remember I was given the opportunity to go to Taiwan to, um, in, you know, sort of, instruct a production company there in the ways of Western uh, production. When I got there, um, there was no difference between what they were doing and what uh, what we were doing, except they did favour a low contrast filter which gave you that soft chocolate box look. Right. <laughs> that, uh, but that's an aesthetic that's an rather aesthetic, than a yeah, exactly. technical, technical approach, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm. So uh, I could teach them nothing that they didn't already know. And uh, I felt a bit foolish, and that their their principle, uh, I guess, um, felt a bit foolish too, because they knew just about just as much, if not more, than I could tell them or teach them. But we have seen changes. I mean, not on a market by market basis, but there has been significant changes, hasn't there, 
in in your career from starting out with shooting on film and big clunky yeah. you know, video to what there is today that techno technological change has really impacted what can be done hasn't it yes it's lightened the load put it that way mm. um now of course the drone yeah the great technical innovation of the drone gone are the days of a thousand dollars a minute for a helicopter they were never that expensive obviously but they were very expensive the aerial shot was used sparingly but basically because it was expensive and now i'm watching television and i say to my wife if i see another drone shot i'm going to vomit mm -hmm. it's just been overused i mean there is a place for it etc etc but now it's it's the gimmick it's like VistaVision oh we'll call it VistaVision now we'll shoot everything on a drone and it's not necessary and it's just a uh, it's interesting but only to a certain extent well I think your point of view there goes to a philosophy which is technology should always create creative opportunities or mm. stimulate yes. the creative yep. mind to oh we could do this and we could do this rather than be the idea itself exactly I mean exactly. you know to sit down and say oh we're <laughs> going to shoot everything on drone is not an idea it's just a technique exactly it's yep. whether it actually helps the creative idea the storytelling the communication or whatever yep. Yep. In fact, I can tell you a story about when the first, um, there was a film called Das Boat, a German film, and they employed the first crane with a hothead, which means that the operator didn't sit behind the camera, he sat away from the crane, mm -hmm. and he um, used a pair of uh, gear, or the wheels that you would have on like a Like almost like pulleys. On yeah. a geared head. Yeah. Uh, which is something else that's gone out of fashion. But um, so what you could do is you could get the camera into incredibly tight spots. Mm. And, you know, it was, the film was shot on a submarine, so you could put the camera in the in the forward. Which uh, actually helped it creatively because that yeah. created that sense of claustrophobia because the camera was getting in very intimate yep. points yep. where the action filled the screen and you got that sense because I remember watching that film. Mm. You just felt the claustrophobia of being in a submarine. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So um, they were called Lumar cranes because that's whoever invented it. That's what he named it, and um, they became the latest piece of technology. And one was brought out to Australia by Samuelson, and I remember an ad being shot on a Lumar crane for a, a vehicle because they could actually move the, uh, the camera right around the vehicle, 180 degrees. Mm. Um, so it was an ad that was written for a piece of equipment. Um, what happened, of course, was that the, uh, the, car, the camera was reflected um, in the car, in the panels of the car. Mm. So the whole thing became a failure and the one-shot uh, ad uh, ended up being um, a multiple-cut shot and uh, everybody was looking to blame everybody else because nobody had thought about the actual reflection. Of course, there was no operator in the shot because he was down below mm. the level of the camera. But, but the camera that. itself yeah. was in and the that, shot. And that is one of the things, isn't it, about advertising, is that there are certain products 
that are really difficult to shoot. Yeah, you know, cars are one of them. They're yeah. large reflective surfaces, mm, moving, and, and and yeah, often moving, yeah. or or you're moving around the car. Yep. Yeah. Um, and so you know, and and you see the same in well anything. You know, um, uh, even as simple. I remember years ago on a catalog shoot, um, even shooting the. Uh, the cutlery mm. in every single shot was a you saw <laughs> the reflection of the um, of the photographer. Mm. So that's uh, that's you know one of the issues that happens when you're focused on the the job, the technology, and not necessarily on the outcome, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I guess the other thing that uh, technology's allowed us to do is to be able to really expand the storytelling, hasn't it? Oh yeah. So, you know, we've had uh, examples of, you know, things can be done now uh, that, you know, were inconceivable or at least incredibly expensive to do previously. Yeah. I mean, the the prime example of that is battle scenes in things like Game of Thrones or uh, Lord of the Rings and things like that where 80% of the combatants are actually digitally created. And once upon a time, you know, you would have needed an army of horse wranglers, an army of extras, an army of costumers to get them into their armour, an army, an army of armourers to give them each a sword and a shield, etc. These things were incredibly uh, expensive and things like Ben-Hur and Spartacus and things like that, you know, that were in the 70s, 60s. No, no, back in the... 50s and 60s. Back in the 50s, yeah. I remember going to see Spartacus with my dad in the um, in the Holden to uh, the drive-in <laughs> and being amazed. But uh, they were just, you know, they were, they the were logistics massive. The of that yeah, massive. They, they were massive and they were promoted as such because they had to recoup so much money that they'd invested in them in these massive scenes. And... Uh, the Hollywood water tank where you would have you know, fleets of Roman boats with their oars clashing. That was all real. And uh, But nowadays, you just give it to some clever artists and they uh, they create it all in a computer. And well, there's actually companies that specialise in this sort of work, isn't there? Oh, yeah. yeah. There's a one, in, uh, one in Melbourne that does the Game of Thrones stuff and they were originally... Um, they were, they were originally a digital company that started creating images uh, and then duplicating the same image but changing it ever so slightly. So once if you, you would uh, construct, let's say, a mouse and then you would change it ever so slightly, perhaps change its colour uh, and then reproduce it and then you'd have two mice, mm. and then three mice, and then four mice until you had a plague of them. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, and in fact, um, there's even uh, companies that build libraries. You know, I remember a job you did. I, I can't remember the client, but it doesn't yeah. matter. They were doing 3D animation. Mm. And I remember you said the quote came in because they was, there was a ballroom scene and they needed to create all these characters and that the agency and production company had allowed full development of all of these characters, you know, yep. 100, let's say 100 3D animated, wireframes, surfacing, light, all of that for all of these characters. And 
you went to a website where you literally, it was like a library of anima- 3D animated characters yep. that you could just buy them off the shelf. Exactly. You'd buy the wireframes and then yeah. you could dress them any way you liked. Yeah. Change, you know, put a, 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 a frock on one and a frock coat on another, etc. You know, a wig and a, all sorts of stuff. Yeah, amazing. Just, it's, uh, yeah. Like just the, the opportunities there are now to really use technology to, to you know, create that creative opportunity yeah. you know, to actually yeah. make it something that yeah. people are going to remember. Once upon a time, you would have said that's far too expensive to produce. Now, of course, the sky's the limit. Well, I think there's a big focus these days on getting the cost down. You know, technology has come down in cost, <coughs> and there's a real belief from I think most marketers mm. that they want you know they don't want to spend on the big um, blockbuster. No, no. Well, they don't want to spend full stop, unfortunately. <laughs> now, a few things. Are, for instance, they don't use film anymore. Yeah. So there's no stock costs involved. I remember when I was working in Asia, a producer told me that uh, uh, you make an estimate of how much stock you will need and then you double it or even triple it. And this is what gives you the fat in your budget for when things go wrong. Mm. And she said to me that the agency and the client have got no idea how much film it actually takes to shoot a 30-second or 60-second commercial. Mm. And what used to happen, of course, is that the director and the producer would have a contract and that they would split the money that was saved. By so not shooting by the not allowance. By not shooting the allowance, exactly. Mm. So it was greed-driven and um, you know that's why they had the Range Rover uh, in the car park and not the... Uh, the Ford the yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But um, also there was, uh, you know, even today though, there's examples of that. I mean, you know, uh, as technology's changed, yep. we see, uh, you know, often production companies will still have allowances in there for technology that's no longer needed. Exactly, exactly. Or, for instance, um, not even technology, but um, location searches in... in 10 years ago, there would be an allowance for a location search and that would involve a location expert getting in his car, his or her car and driving around to assorted locations and knocking on the door and asking if they could come in and if they could use this for a film set, etc., etc. Now, everything is um, filed away digitally and they no, need, no longer need to get in their car and drive out. And yet that allowance is still on film budgets. Mm. You know, the location finder can just sit on his, his or her computer and look for a suitable locations. Mm. And Plus, you know, allowances of like, you know, $1,000 a day for uh, mobile phones and um, yeah. mobile internet. Yeah. <laughs> when uh, I think that would pay for my, a year of my, uh, my allowance and I've got no chance of using the uh, exactly. 60 gigabytes a month to... Exactly. Uh, to do, use yeah, that. Yeah. That's an example of uh, when, here's, a, here's another example of technology changing, and um, that's uh, writing a, um, an estimate for, a, for a, a production. Once upon a time, it was all done with pencils and paper, and then you'd hand it to the secretary, and she would type it out, and it would be presented to the agency or the client you know, once she'd finished with it. Uh, now everything's computerised, and you can have a very, very accurate uh, budget to the agency or the client 
within a matter of hours of being briefed. Mm. And what, what that has done is that the computer will factor in each and every possibility for the production. Mm. And, uh, and it's a good idea because I remember when I was actually doing, making one of these on an Excel spreadsheet that you never wanted the person doing the, doing the budgeting to forget anything. Yeah, but look on that, you know, because we know that uh, equipment hire, most equipment mm-hmm. hire places, if you hire for more than three days, they'll give it to you for a week. And yet a lot Correct. of these budgeting computers mm. will say, well, you've got a five-day shoot or a yeah, four-day shoot. Multiply it by so they'll multiply five. the one-day rate exactly. by four or five times when yep. in actual fact the production company and the hire company are only yep. going to pay each other for three days. That's right. Um, and what's uh, another one I remember? Helps you pay for the Range Rover. Yeah. Well, and not, the other one was, um, uh, you, I remember you pointed out to me that they had an allowance for a high-speed lens kit mm-hmm. and they already had a standard, or they had the standard lens kit in there as well. Yep. And the argument they said was, well, we need the high-speed lens kit for the high-speed shooting and we need the standard. <laughs> Well, in actual fact, you use the high speed for, for everything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there are a lot of little areas that yep. can quickly be add up to significant costs, aren't there? But yeah. it'd be almost impossible. For, well, a good agency producer. I mean, you were an agency producer for yeah. Yeah. quite a while. You'd mm-hmm. pick this up. But, you know... It's but most agency producers come from within the agency. Not from the production Yeah, I was a bit of an anomaly that uh, I ended up in... Um, in being an agency producer. Most of them come from within the agency. Right, so they're not actually No, they're not, they're not au fait uh, with the subtleties of the technology, et cetera, et cetera. So they'd also be possibly a little uh, hesitant to challenge the oh, of production, course. the producer, of because yeah. the producer does this every day. Yep, yep, yeah. yeah. I don't know what's the correct word, the crimes that were committed for want of a better word. At, at worst, it's fraud. <laughs> yeah, okay? exactly. At worst, it's a fraud. Yeah. Uh, it could be just seen as, you know, trying to push the boundaries <laughs> of what's accepted. Yeah. But, you know, we hear all the time from the production industry how there's just no money left for production anymore. Yep. So yep. do they have, are they still driving Range Rovers or are they uh, no. trading down? No, no, they're trading down. They have to, to stay in business. Uh, I mean... I must admit, and I was part of the part of the movement. Or, well, actually, it wasn't. A, it was just a time in history when production staff, you know, the film crew, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, were paid exorbitant amounts of money because there were so few of them. There are um, industry standards set for you know uh, fees, but once you become freelance and you set yourself up in the marketplace, you can demand anything you want as long as it's within the competition, you mm-hmm. know, as long as you stay within reasonably close to your competition. So it's, you know, because uh, I know talking to crew members, they say that advertising and the sort of long form, you know, whether it's TV or, or feature or what, a documentary, the rates are pretty much the standard across the board now that the old loading for uh, advertising often doesn't get paid. That's right, that's right. It's because the producers have got such a pool of, of talent these days um, that they can just say, ring up, let's say they ring up five groups and say we're offering 
you know, two hundred dollars a day. Do you want it? Mm. And of course, the grip with the, you know, the, the debt. He's got to pay for his dolly and his truck and his all his little bits of equipment. He'll take it because two hundred dollars is better than no dollars. Mm. But uh, that leaves uh, advertisers in a difficult position because they've traditionally relied on their agencies to manage the costs for them. Mm. And the danger, I guess, is that if you pay too little, you could potentially end up with something that you don't really want to run. And if you pay too much, you're just wasting money. Yeah, that is a dilemma. That is a dilemma. I I don't know about the bottom end where you... um, end up with something you can't run. I mean, you are there when it's being shot. The indicators are there on the screen for you when you know, you're know you watching it. The agency has to sign off each shot. And I, I remember a director taking his storyboard to the shoot and sticking it to the wall. And each time he shot something, he would get the agency to sign it off. Mm. You've got to remember, it's the agency's script. It's not the director's script. So if something becomes unpresentable because it's a crap script. I mean, the director's done his best and the crew have done their best, but it just doesn't cross get across the line because nobody thought about the script or how... You know, but but the, I, I guess when I talked about the bottom end is mm-hmm. where, you know, we're seeing increasingly um, uh, advertisers bypassing their agency and going direct mm-hmm. because, you know, and, and I've heard people say to me, oh, I don't know why I pay 150000 to get a TV ad made. Mm. I got this video made for like $5,000. Yes. Yep. You know, and the danger is that when you get, if you keep going down too low, you start cutting corners and you increase risk. Yes. Yeah. Well, I don't know whether the risk is that it's unpresentable. Mm. What no. is the risk then? When you start cutting corners, um, there are certain safety aspects. Mm-hmm. Obviously, um, you know traffic control and uh, having a nurse on set, for things like that. Um, having a decent caterer so that your crew doesn't get gastro at lunchtime. <laughs> oh, no, seriously, these, these mate. I have been served crew lunches by a guy with a rubber glove on, diving into a bain marie and plopping the food out on the plate, right? Right, <laughs> so, okay. So there are two extremes here, obviously. But, uh, you know, these these are risks. Um, risks by not uh, testing the equipment before uh, the shoot. Like, I, I, I've been on shoots where I got given money to go down to the local <laughs> takeaway yeah. and buy everyone's lunch. Yeah. So, you know, there, there's lots of different ways of doing that. Mm. Oh, Clive, you know, we've run out of time, but because uh, there, there's so many stories. We haven't even scratched the surface. I know, there. there's so many things that we could talk about. <laughs> but um, I'm just wondering, uh, you know, before, before we finish, through all your career, is there a production or a piece of work that you are most proud of? <laughs> <laughs>